Before we begin this week's conversation, I want to let you know about a new podcast named Disorder. The Disorder podcast is hosted by NATO Foundation analyst Jason Pack and former British diplomat Alexandra Hall Hall. It examines the increasing chaos of our times, the rise of hybrid warfare, cyber misinformation, transnational crime, corruption, global warming, immigration flows, and anti-immigrant sentiment, and how fed by these things, neopopulism has spread, further fueling a backlash against free markets, international organizations, expertise, and globalization. The Disorder Podcast argues that we are living through a new historical era, one characterized by the inability to coordinate coherent responses to global challenges. Moreover, major global players, previously regarded as upholders of international law, now seek to actively exacerbate the new global disorder. The Disorder Podcast focuses on our global system via engaging storytelling, discussions with experts and opinion formers, reporting, and solutions and suggestions for what can be done about it all. Find and follow Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. We live in a world that feels as though it is in the grip of rapid and capricious change. To rescue ourselves from the distress and dismay that change can induce, we tell ourselves that flux is the signature of contemporary life and sets us apart from the simpler worlds in which those before us lived. Yet we really have little ground to be so confident that present flux is outdoing past, for there have been times when the very conditions of survival were stripped from our predecessors, denying them the dignity of living well. This book is about one of those times, China in the early 1640s, when massive climate cooling, pandemic, and military invasion sent millions to their deaths. Those are the words of my guest Timothy Brook, which begin his new book, The Price of Collapse, The Little Ice Age and the Fall of Ming China. Founded in 1368, the Ming Dynasty overthrew Mongol rule, eventually moved the capital of China to Beijing, and ushered in centuries of economic growth, dazzling cultural achievement, and a doubling of the population. This book is an inquiry into how that achievement collapsed and why. Timothy Brooke is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of British Columbia. His work focuses on the Ming Dynasty, but has extended to both earlier and much later eras. This is his second appearance on the podcast. He was first on in episode 180 to discuss his book, Great State, China and the World. Tim Brooke, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get to anything else, we should probably uh, do a definition. What is price history? Since we're going to be discussing price history a lot. Before we get to China, let's get to the even stranger terrain of price history. The project began not as a project to understand climate change. The project began because I wanted to understand the most basic, simple fact that anyone in a somewhat commercialized society has to deal with, and that is how much do things cost? It was, so it was a very kind of simple-minded question that I had. I would just want to know, 
what did you, what did it cost to live during the Ming dynasty? And I've worked on the Ming dynasty for long enough that I had a good sense of what society and economy and politics were like during the period. So what I wanted to do is go down to the level of daily life and figure out what did things cost? Did people have enough income to be able to buy the things they needed? How was that income distributed? How were costs managed? So I started out with this very simple idea. And in fact, the idea was niggling in the back of my mind for about two decades. And so over the last two decades, whenever I'm reading a source of the Meng, I pick out the prices of things when prices of things are mentioned. Now, there is no, European historians have got a huge edge on China historians over the question of prices, because if there's any number of sources uh, that uh, European scholars can use, market sources, parish records, and so forth. In China, we don't have or a, a kind of a comprehensive list of prices, although we, we've got some good price lists from officials who wanted to make sure that they weren't paying over the odds for the things that they needed and that their underlings weren't forcing local merchants to sell at prices that were higher than what the market bore. I was collecting this data and I thought, Prices, it turns out prices are not the clear objective data that we like to think they are because every price represents a particular transaction and the price may be higher than it should be. It may be lower than it should be. It may be dependent on the month that it was paid. You need a lot of prices in order to be able to write the history of prices and, and, and it, which is something that you do in order to, to the history of how people lived. So I proceeded collecting this data, pulling it together. And then it was actually during COVID that I was locked down and I thought, okay, I'm going to pull the, all my price data together and see what I've got. And I started writing a manuscript that went on and on, and it would have bored the, well, bored people to death to read what I was finding out about prices because prices themselves aren't so interesting. You need to use prices to tell a story. And initially I thought the story was going to be, what's the standard of, what's the cost of living? What are standards of living that, that people live through in the main? And then the light finally went on and I realized my best data were the prices to which grain rose during famines. And I have this data because it's something that the local records tended to record. If there is a serious famine. There, there's, we have these local records called gazetteers. They're produced roughly every 50 or 60 years. A new edition comes out. It's updated from the previous edition. They're done down at the county level and the Ming had over a thousand counties. So we've got this huge trove of historical material. And it's in the records of disasters that you'll often find what the price of rice rose to, or the price of millet or whichever or wheat, whatever grade we're looking at. And. I realized those are the most consistent data that I've been able to find. So not ordinary prices, but the prices to which things rose uh, during disasters. And once I realized that was my best data, I thought, what's the story I'm going to tell here? I can tell the story of catastrophe, but I could also think about whether those, the timing of those prices reflects any other factor in the larger Chinese world, and in fact, in the larger global world. 
And that's what took me to the Little Ice Age. And I realized that the, the, these distorted prices that emerged time and again through the Ming Dynasty were directly related to changes in global climate. That's a beautiful synopsis of not only what price history is, but of the entire conversation that we're about to have. I think you don't talk about this in the book because to you it's as familiar as, I don't know, to, as what George Washington did in 1794 is to me. But we should describe the heights of Ming China to people who know that they made nice vases and that there are these really big ships that went to Australia or something like that. We know that Ming is grand, but how grand was Ming? What were the heights to which they had risen? The Ming was founded when several Chinese rebels in various parts of the country drove out the Mongols. The Mongols had occupied China for a century during what we know as the Yuan Dynasty. They were driven out in 1368. And the strongest of the rebel leaders, Zhuan Zhao, founded his dynasty, which he called Ming. And his concern through the opening, I was opening four decades of the dynasty, was to reestablish China as Chinese. So he wanted Mongol influences removed. He wanted people stop wearing Mongol clothes. He wanted to reestablish a kind of ideal rural community that everyone would live in, that people would be self-sufficient. There would be a little bit of commerce in order to move things that weren't available from regions where they were abundant to regions where they weren't. But he wanted to go back to a kind of perfect Arcadian ideal Chinese world. And he was quite successful. He was quite ruthless, which is partly why he was so successful. After he dies, he, he puts his grandson on this throne. And the grandson is overthrown and killed four years later by one of his uncles, who then steps in. And the uncle, the Yongle emperor, is much more in the Mongol style. He wants expansion. He wants to move out to the borders. He sends fleets abroad into the Indian Ocean. He likes this idea of being a powerful ruler. And this is partly where, if you like, the grandness of the Ming comes from. It's from somebody like Yongle. He rebuilds the Grand Canal. He does all of these huge projects, impoverishes the country at a certain level but creates it as a great state, both in a descriptive sense and in the technical sense of a large, centralized, expansive um, doming mm -hmm. and, and that, that can dominate all its neighbors and that can act unilaterally with all its, with, with all its neighbors. And so that becomes the Ming. The Ming faces setbacks over the next century of various sorts, but it's more or less able to hold its own. And to have the authority to tell its neighbors to act as it wishes them to act, and not to pressure it in any way. The Mongols continue to be an irritant all through the Ming Dynasty, and that problem is never solved. But then things start to really pick up in the early 16th century, when the first Portuguese ships arrive on the south coast. The amount of trade is minuscule initially, but it gradually picks up. And it's not just the Portuguese. There are merchants from Goa. There are merchants from Sumatra and Java there, merchants from Japan. And so global trade starts to pick up in the 16th century. And it starts, and, it, and it's aided by the fact of new silver deposits being discovered and mined in Japan. 
and in the Americas in Mexico and Peru. I wish you add to that, and people are always relatively unaware, I find, that by the 1580s, the Spanish have established the Manila Galleon. They've discovered the, they've discovered the Japanese current. They can go from Manila to Acapulco yes. and from Acapulco to Manila, and they're bringing lots and lots of silver yes. from new mines in Peru and Bolivia, what's now Bolivia, yes. and massive ballasting the ship in silver and bring some chili peppers along as well to create Szechuan cuisine and kimchi and things that we like and think must have been around forever, but these are all new innovations that are being brought along with yes. the trade. So there's a huge transformation going on across the world in the, particularly in the second half of the 16th, first half of the 17th centuries. And this is the period of the Ming dynasty. So the Ming is well poised to get, to engage with this. Politically, the Ming state does not want to get involved with other states. It often closes its borders. It won't let its merchants go abroad. But Chinese merchants figure out how to get around the rules. And, and China does well because it produces high-quality manufactured objects at prices that are intensely competitive around the world. So and nobody can produce a Chinese porcelain the way Ming Chinese can. So the demand for Ming Chinese porcelain is enormous. The demand for Chinese silks is enormous. Japan also exports silks, but it's a smaller country with a smaller industry. So China is suddenly really well poised to, to engage in the, this surge of global trade. And yet, as I said, the political leadership is not really willing to become one of 10,000 other countries, to use the phrase of, of the time. China is a country on its own. And it's what, one of the effects of this trade is that Jesuit missionaries start arriving in China. They're getting on the merchant ships. They're showing up in India, Southeast Asia. They get to China. They begin to share some European insights with Chinese. And conversations begin that begin to transform everybody's idea about what's going on. Chinese learn about Europe from the Jesuits. The Jesuits learn about China from the Chinese. And gradually, there is this expansion of global knowledge that is going on. And that is, that is posing questions about some of the accepted assumptions about how the world looks, what the world looks, how the world works, what the world looks like. So there's all of this tumultuous transformation is going on in the late Ming period. You begin the book with two essays by Chun Chida. And you say in many, I think you say, I think it's a lovely comment near the end of the book. You say that in many ways, you've just written a excursus you've developed or footnotes on Chanchita's essays. Yes. So he is, we have to describe who he is and what who these essays are, but I'm particularly interested in, he describes the abundance of the, of everyday life, the abundance of the era of the, the Wanli emperor. That's right. And so we should, that I think fills out the bottom part of the high level of Ming society well, and culture. I, I should say that as an author, I like to be able to tell stories that engage the reader and bring them into the issues that I want them to notice. And Chen Shida certainly does this. Chen Shida was a, he never passed any of the degrees that got you to be, uh, enabled you to become an official. He was a school teacher in Tongxiang, which is about a hundred kilometers southwest of Shanghai. He was a member of a kind of lower gentry family, a respectable family. He was an educator. 
We don't really know much about him, uh, but in 1640, the economy of the Yangtze Delta, where he lives, collapses under the weight of climate change. And he puts pen to paper and writes, writes an account of the collapse of his world. And yes, he goes back to the Wadley era, the 1570s, 80s, 90s, when things were great. And then does a history that brings it up into the present when the price of grain skyrockets, there's no water in the rivers, or there's floods that wash everything away. People are starving. People are dying on the roads. His world has just been torn apart and turned upside down. And then a year later, he writes a second essay describing, he thought things had gotten bad at the end of the first essay, but they got even worse in the year following for 1641. So he writes a second essay. Those essays, Chinese historians have noticed those essays because they got reproduced in the local gazetteer for Zhongxiang County. And they're often taken as a, here's what happened at the end of the Ming Dynasty. But I thought, no, let's stop. Let's take Chen Shida's two essays and think about what's in them. And what's in them is an extraordinarily precise account of the impact of global climate change on this little village that he lived in on the Yangtze Delta. And yes, I say that the book note is a footnote on Chen Chida because we've got to understand what did things cost? How high did the prices rise? What was the impact across society? And I could tell that story in my own words, but I thought, no, let's let Chen tell the story. And then we'll think about how to make sense of the way in which Chen tells his story. Well, part of making sense of that and is to put ourselves in the mentality, since this is very out of least this book, so I should say mentalité, of what price hikes, what famine prices mean in this society. Yes. And they are a sign of the curses of heaven. Yes. I, I, so I, I had to spend a certain amount of time in the book, not a lot, but thinking about what if you lived in the late Ming and you were Chinese, what is it that you thought about prices? And the idea that the idea was that prices should be stable. And if prices start going out of whack, there is a problem in the larger cosmos. Now that cosmos, the way in which the Chinese, the label Chinese put on that in the late Ming was not nature. They didn't have the concept really of nature or climate. They had the concept of heaven. And if things were going loopy, it's because heaven was unhappy. Now, heaven can be unhappy with the ruler. Heaven can also be unhappy with the people failing to do what the ruler wants them to do. And this is where you get into some interesting politics because a lot of authors really didn't want to write about this kind of thing because you didn't want to find yourself on the wrong side of the political leadership by saying things have gone to hell in a handbasket because the emperor is an idiot. That was not something we were in a position to write about. But by leaving a record, and this is what Chen wanted to do, he wanted to leave a record so that later generations would realize how bad things can get, how far afoul of heaven people could go, and therefore what the proper moral course was to take in order to prevent heaven from visiting these disasters on people. So I do, I do touch on that a little bit. But I also bring in, in the book, a little bit of what Europeans thought at the time. Europeans also thought that crazy prices were a sign of 
something bigger than just it's cold this winter and the prices have gone up. But the European, because Europeans were going through this period of revisiting what Christianity meant with the rise of Protestantism, there was perhaps a little bit more room to begin to think about climate as a kind of independent variable. And mm -hmm. I, there is some of that going on in China in this period, eh? but it remains, the moral issue remains at the core of what Chinese are thinking. I say that, and yet at the same time, if you're a local official, your concern is you can't let the local people starve to death. So you've got to figure out, where do I get grain? How do I change the conditions under which grain is grown? How do I get rich people to open up their grain stocks and sell them at a reasonable price to lower people? So it becomes a kind of polit political crisis as, as well. But this goes on, I mean, it starts in the late 1620s, picks up through the late 1630s, and then by 1640 through to 1644, China goes through a period of desperate climate collapse, such as it hasn't, hadn't gone through for a millennium. Just to finish off this, the morally charged nature of the climate of the, or of heaven's disfavor, let me read a couple wonderful Page 10, you tap the reader on the chest and say, hey, listen, you say, we take disruptions in the weather and the ecology of disease as morally charged warnings of environmental degradation and climate change. So we do not stand at all that great a distance from the people of the Ming, even though our moral calculations are very differently based. And again, in fact, we and they inhabit a global ecosystem that was and is prone to disturbance, whether because human folly blocks heaven's blessing or human-generated carbon and aerosols block the sun's energy, we also share the habit of tracking our fortunes through the prices we have to pay. That's certainly true in late 2023 United States, I can yes. tell you. And I'll, I'm glad you brought that out because what I wanted to do is I don't want to orientalize my late main people. Their concerns were structured around their assumptions of how the world worked and you take out a few of their concepts and insert ours, and we're not all that far from them. This is part of my attempt to try and understand how did people live through climate change in China in the 1640s in relation to how are we, we haven't yet gotten to the scale of crisis the people of the late Ming got to, but how are we thinking about these issues? And so we're not all that far from them. We use different concepts. We phrase the whole thing differently, but our anxieties about climate change are not all that far from their anxieties. Heaven's over. As you had just referred to the sort of the ideas of what prices indicate, there are many ideas of what prices indicate in Europe as, as just as much, if not more than in, in Ming China. And uh, this leads to theories of just price. Yes. Uh, which I is really hard sometimes to, to pursue and, and understand, but we need to talk about briefly about what prices conveyed to people uh, throughout Eurasia. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 following up on this, so that it's not just the heavens. What prices convey about moral fiber or lack of it, or heaven's favor, or, or just how you're being screwed over by the uh, grain merchant down right. the, in the next village over? Right. The Chinese concept for this is gulpei, which means that the price should be level for everybody. And if the prices are getting, 
are no longer level, the first thing you do is you perhaps look for an, one of a, a historical actor who is manipulating prices. So the first person you doubt is the merchant. Is he charging too much? But then you also think about the government. Is the government acting in a way that's forcing prices to go up? Is the government paying over the odds for the grain that it needs? Or is it forcing merchants to discount to such a level that the merchants are then coming back to ordinary people and pushing their, their prices up? So the, the idea of a fair price is in the first stages is very much a human concern. But once this fair price is lost, once prices have gone so far away from a fair price, then you have to look at uh, larger systemic problems. But I think in this, and probably every, I, I'm, I think it's fair to say, every society has a notion of fair price. A society in which you have to buy your basic necessities, you're dependent on prices. And we all know what's a fair price for a loaf of bread or a cup of coffee. And that's why my book is a kind of a footnote to Chen Jidu, because uh, Chen Jidu didn't buy a loaf of bread or a cup of coffee, but he had to buy a, um, a liter of grain or he had to buy a pound of pork. He knew what the prices should be. And every, we all live with a sense of what a fair price is. And I think most of us live with the idea that prices should be fair. That's In the last two years, I've seen a number of moral panics over the price of bacon. Uh, so well, that reading the book, I felt right at home. Yes, we're, we in the last, you're right, the last two years, the way commodity prices have changed for us in North America has been often shocking. So we're at an early stage of this loss of level prices and, and it's concerning. And so in the Chinese case, Chinese expected the government to step in and to try and equalize prices, to get prices to become level again by moving supplies around to places where they're needed, by lowering taxes on producers of certain products. The Chinese expectation was that the government should be involved in trying to solve the problem. But in the 1640s, the scale of the problem was beyond the capacity of any government. I just, I'm sorry if I missed this in the book, but do, how are, is price information conveyed between areas of China? Merchants' letters are merchants trying to meet um, demand because, after all, prices, as the economists always tell us, prices are signals, prices are information. Yeah. Where, how is this information conveyed and how or do people act upon this information? From the position of the Ming state, uh, the Ming required local magistrates to send people out into the markets uh, initially once a month, though it becomes every once every six months, to go out into the market, find out what things cost, and then report that to the center. And they did that because they wanted to be able to track disturbances in, in prices in different regions of the country and to act proactively so that those price disturbances weren't going to cause, uh, catastrophes or political disturbances or whatever. Now, how merchants did this, we, we have very little in the way of merchants records from the Ming dynasty. Um, but certainly merchants communicated with each other. Uh, if you were running a grain business in Suzhou and you had buyers up in, up in Wuhan, up the Yangtze River, you would be corresponding with them. You would be writing letters and saying, the price here has now gone to that. What's your price there? And that information must have been shared because we know that merchants often responded very quickly to price hikes. They were able to bring in grain very quickly. 
but we don't have any documentation that survives. And we, and I kept thinking as I was reading this about, we'll get to famine prices and the consequences of famine prices yeah. and the catastrophes resulting from them. I'm thinking to myself, this is happening in, this, in, in the country with the most sophisticated infrastructure in the world. You mentioned the Grand Canal earlier, yes. but not, and good roads and the most marvelous river tr commerce network in the world as well. I mean, it's ideal, China is ideally sued for river commerce. Yes. And yet it's happening despite that. Yes. And the, the point that I'm trying to make about that is that the collapse of the Ming dynasty was not as a result of administrative or moral failure. And that's usually how the fall of the Ming dynasty is narrated. There's a, they, they, the administration is not functioning as it should. The leadership is not, is not respecting the, the people in the way in which it should. And so the Manchus pour in over the Great Wall and that's the end of the Ming. No, I think there were highly competent people working in the late Ming administration, but the scale of the disaster was so enormous that they, they, they ran out of options. There was nothing that they could do to alleviate the problem and collapse was unavoidable. Not, not, nothing is unavoidable in history, but I think we, I, this is pretty close. This is as close as I would want to admit it. Yeah, this is, this is not a collapse that, that, that for which we can blame the Ming. And now there's a narrative that got going in the early in the Qing dynasty that said the Ming collapsed because Ming, the Ming people were frivolous and immoral and irresponsible. And a lot of Chinese sort of took that on board and said, oh yeah, the Ming was an awful time. Thank God the managers came in and got us going in a straight line again. That's not true at all. That was a narrative that was made up to justify the Manchu takeover. What you write, the task of this book is to scale up Chen's two years of price history in his county to the national and dynastic level. It won't be easy. Very quickly. <laughs> How did you do that? How'd you go about doing that? Because that... I did it uh, again through this process that I described earlier, coll collecting price data. And it, the Ming dynasty was almost three centuries long. So collecting price data, seeing what's going on, and then trying to situate the, these price catastrophes in the larger context. And in the end, in the end, I think I, you really need an economic historian to write a full history of grain prices through the Ming dynasty. Th those are not my skills. I don't have the, the statistical or econometric skills to do that. But I think I have the skills of reading sources and understanding the social impact of all of this stuff to be able to write the story that I did. I did scale it up. Not if somebody wanted to come along and write a more detailed account of changing grain prices over three centuries, I'd really be interested in reading it. But <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that I, know, I would know how to write. Yeah. So but you did not focused. So that's why in the end I focus on climate rather than on the yeah. health systems. But you did have to develop a, a sort of a basket of goods for oh, this yes. period. What's a basket of goods? People might be familiar from this from contemporary right. surveys, but what's a basket of goods in the Wanli era? You need rice is uh, for central and South China. Rice is the main staple. So you need enough rice. You need some vegetables, a little meat if possible, maybe a little wine, throw it on top of that. You need sufficient 
to be able to buy enough textiles to make your clothes. You need to be able to pay your rent. And I put together a rough estimate of what that would cost for somebody who was living at subsistence level and then somebody who was living at a slightly better level. And you could get by. And my Jesuit, I use some Jesuit sources for this. The Jesuit visitors in China are amazed at how Chinese could get by on so little, uh, which sometimes you just have to do. Of course, they were there during a period in which poor Chinese were having to get by on very little. So they added a bit of a distortion to the overall picture. But I wanted to establish what a basket of goods would cost so that we could have that as we watched grain prices rise and just rise way out of reach of anything that an ordinary family could pay for. Now, you, you have a chapter, this fits into sort of interests of yours that we, you and I are discussing in a separate recording of the international effects on China's relation to the world. Yes. And as, you, as we've just said at the beginning said, when we were desc you're describing the Ming period, this is a period of international trade. This is the first era of globalization. Yes. I, I think I, I'm right in saying this. I used to always tell classes this. By 1600, you could travel around the world on regularly scheduled voyages. It, I don't think anyone ever did, but it was possible. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could do it. Is it possible then? One theory has been, uh, probably in the last 20 years, maybe a little longer, 40 years, that it was in it, what you call a Magellanic exchange, which I like very much. That's all this silver coming over, ballasting the Manila, Gal Manila Galleon coming over from Mexico and Peru. And it's flooding into China and it's driving up prices. Yeah. This, this was a popular argument that you're right, got going about 40 years ago. And, and it was initially really warmly received, including by me, uh, when it was first made, because I thought, oh, China is part of the world and silver coming from South America is altering the Chinese economy. That argument that, that silver was flowing into China is, it's still a reasonable argument to make. It, it was flowing in the, in huge volume. The question though, is to what extent did that silver destabilize the economy? And the, the simple answer early on was that the economy was destabilized. And when the flow of silver was cut or, or diminished in the 1630s, that threw the Ming into an economic crisis and collapsed. And while I accept that silver played an important role in the history of the late Ming, I don't think the Ming collapsed because of the silver trade. And in fact, this is something that hasn't been as, as fully studied as it should be. Richard von Glan at UCLA has done the best work on this so far, but we really don't have a sense of where did the silver go? And I have a little, a, a short section that deals with the price of artworks because the art market goes crazy in the late Ming. And I think that's one of the places where the foreign silver goes. It goes into buying artworks. So it doesn't go into destabilizing the basic economy. And, and so I included that chapter as a way of addressing that particular scholarly concern. But I thought ordinary readers would also be interested mm. because it's a, I've attempted to describe how England participated in the silver trade in the late Ming, how China participated what those effects were, and then what those effects were outside China. So we can watch the effects of Chinese goods in South America and the effect of, and Chinese goods are cheaper than Spanish goods. So ordinary people are buying Chinese textiles. They're not buying Spanish, European textiles. 
And it, I just found it, it, it's maybe a bit of a tangent, but I found it an interesting story to tell as a way of setting aside this argument that the flow of silver is what causes the molten collapse. Mm -hmm. I should say that you give three rapid fire arguments about why you don't think the Magellanic Exchange is increasing prices. First, that more China is reaching China from Asian sources, particularly Japan, yeah. than from the Americas. Those are the silver mines yes. you're mentioning. Second, the Manila Galleons, they did create an important channel for the exchange of Chinese commodities and American silver, but bullion was as likely to arrive from the other direction after it crossed from Atlantic to Europe, and then by way of the East India Company to India, yeah. and then from those traders from Goa yeah. all the way yeah. to China. And finally, the Ming was economy was large enough to absorb the arriving silver into its systems of commercial exchange yes. rather than be destabilized, which and is that, that last argument is the one that I feel is the, the foundation on which my assumptions are built. That there's just, the economy is too big for the amount of silver coming in to be distorted by it. Now there's a case that if somebody in the future is able to do research to prove me wrong. I'd be really interested to hear that. No, this is a great book for inspiring dissertations, I think. <laughs> no, it, it really is. People with different skill sets and different knowledges. I've always suspected that it's just with that last argument made me think that a lot of people proposing it, I'm not sure. Some of them, I'm sure, are coming from a European perspective yeah. and just like me. I just don't understand how big the Ming economy is. Yeah. It's gargantuan yeah. compared to everything else. The let's get to finally the hard part, which is let's talk about famine grain prices first. Could you, because this is the heart of your evidence, right? This is, as you said earlier at the beginning, these are the prices that are reported and tell within these numbers are the worst sort of human devastation and tragedy that anyone could possibly imagine. Yes. Yes. Grain starts out at three to four one hundredths of a tail of silver, which is, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers in front of me, which is a very small amount for, for a what's called a dough, which is a, a bucket of grain. And during the worst famines at the end of the Ming, it's costing hundreds. The price is a hundred times higher than it was at the beginning. So it's, and in fact, those spectacular prices at the end of the Ming, you wonder who was paying the, people couldn't afford to pay those prices. For grain, perhaps a few rich people were spending that price. And, and uh, uh, this is another problem with grain data. We don't actually know that anybody spent that, that amount of money to buy grain, but those are the prices that got recorded as a way of registering the scale of the disaster that people were going through. And, and it was just beyond anyone's comprehension that they would rise so high. And what are the consequences of that? This is where the yeah. societal consequences yeah. of these prices lead to the sense that heaven has turned against. Yes. The consequences are that families can no longer function. And uh, one response is that you flee with your family. You leave your region hoping to find a region where you can get some grain enough to survive. But as families flee, families also start to break apart. They, the, uh, the father of a family might just take off in order to survive, leaving the wife and children, or they might actually get rid of their children. One way of is selling their children to rich people as servants or slaves. 
Husbands and wives tended not to stay together. It was so desperate to find food. And in fact, there's more than a few stories that say if you were out on the road carrying a sack of grain, um, you, you were putting your life at risk because somebody would come along and kill you to take your grain. That's what, how desperate it was. What are these stories of cannibalism? Is that just moralizing? Um, Is this... It's cannibalism starts with consuming the corpses of the dead and quite I find references to cannibalism all over China in, in local records. The question that still is there in my mind is was cannibalism practiced once or twice, or was it practiced on a larger scale? And I think, and, and it's hard for me to be able to evaluate that because when a Chinese writer wanted to say, this is how desperate things got, he will say people resorted to cannibalism. Did they? I'm not, not entirely sure. And there's a, a famous short story written in the 20th century about people resorting to cannibalism. And the short story writer doesn't resolve the problem of whether it happened or not, but that's the perception. And it's a moral panic. It's very much a moral panic because cannibalism is what you do not do if you are human. But we have, there, of course, there are cases of famine cannibalism all over the world. It's, this is not something that's in China, but it's mm -hmm. something that Chinese writers keep referring to, I think, as a way of trying to describe the moral collapse that people have been forced into. We, one of the things I didn't do in this book, and it would have been interesting to try and do it, would be to estimate the number of people who die. I say at the beginning of the book, millions died. Yeah. The Ming was roughly a hundred million people. Millions is not an, ex, is not a, is not an incorrect figure, but it's a very vague figure. And I, I wish it were, that would have been something that would have been interesting to pursue a little more closely, but we don't, we really don't have good records. When people disappear from the local population records, it's often because they flee, they go somewhere else, or they disappear from the tax records, but they're still there. So, so that's a very hard question to get to. And there are, as you look at the fan prices, there are, and that you trace these peaks yes. in the valleys yes. of these, and, what, and how do you describe those? I use the term, there's a, uh, a, a cannibalism has a trigger. There's a place, once it gets to a certain level in a certain place, that's when you start getting stories of cannibalism. And I didn't pursue that systematically across the Ming, but I did notice that, that there is a price trigger for cannibalism and it varies, varies by year and by region, but it's there. And when people, there's nothing left, people strip the bark off trees, they dig roots out of the ground, they eat weeds, they even eat sand sometimes as a way of filling their bellies. And it's, it's the, these were disasters such as we have not seen in our lifetimes. So we finally come to climate. You describe these six periods of tremendous environmental crisis, famine, social distress, why, which, which are encoded as it were within the, the price yes. history. Why are you persuaded now that climate is the trigger for this? Because when I compare those periods, which I'm calling sloughs, which isn't a technical term, but it's one I use. When I compare those six sloughs with what's going on in terms of global climate, they correlate very closely to the collapse of temperatures or drought. And those temperature and precipitation changes are not random. They're 
part of a larger pattern that we now call the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age used to be this short period at the end of the 16th or early 17th century, but we've extended it now from what, the late, the beginning of the 14th century through to the 19th century. And climate historians have worked on this. And so I turned to their work and I see the patterns they find as the closest, providing the closest correlation with the um, famines in China. So that's why I've framed it within the Little Ice Age. We've even done a, I've even done a podcast on tree rings. I have to I'll well, put it in the, in the show notes. So you're arguing then that these prices are like tree rings or like uh, yes. cores of glacial ice. Yes. That they the, tell us something about the. These are proxies for climate change. And um, they haven't, and, and this is a tr as also true of European history. They haven't been used much by economic historians. Uh, it's partly because they're hard to collect. I've looked at thousands of gazetteers to collect my little bits of price data, but they're, they are a, they're, they're a very sensitive proxy because as soon as something goes wrong and drought, flood, cold, the grain crop fails, people can't buy it. The price goes up. So prices are very sensitive indicators of what climate is doing to human society. And that in the end to me is the, the issue that I wanted to get at the book. How did the little ice age affect the lives that people lived in China during this period? Mm -hmm. And of course, famine, malnutrition leads to disease. Yes. Yes. And, and, and then spend less time on disease than I, I might've liked. Um, uh, but th that was going to be a, a, a more complicated issue, partly because we don't have, um, the, uh, Genetic codes of, of the diseases that erupted in the Ming have not yet been sequenced and so forth. So we're a little far away from being able to track that. But yes, there were pandemics, certainly dysentery, certainly smallpox, and possibly the plague as well. Mm -hmm. um, we should say, I, I should have said this before, that for a modern listener, it's very strange to think about climate as a, as a, we don't understand the role of climate as the most important limiting factor in a agricultural economy, as you say. And I, I love to tell this story. A friend of mine's father retired from farming mm -hmm. and he was out for a walk the first day of his retirement as a, his first day of his life as a non-farmer and it started to rain. And he said, and he realized for the first time in his entire life, whether or not it rained was not of interest to him. <laughs> Well, and that gets at the way that farmers think, but it also gets at the way that one has to think in an agricultural economy. Yes. The, the weather is life or death. And we have, through technology and science, we have developed ways to mitigate some of the effects of climate, but there, there's a limit. If it gets too cold for grain to sprout, there's going to be no grain. Or if it gets too dry for a for for us to be able to move water to the places where grain is growing, we will be without grain. And I think science and technology has cushioned us in a way. We think, oh, there's always going to be a solution to whatever problem we've got. But when climate goes so far beyond what enables us to produce food, we're in trouble. Yeah. And again, that this is happening in a vast kingdom, which yeah. is beautifully connected by a bureaucracy unlike any other in the world or ever existed in the world, 
connected by an infrastructure unlike any other in the world at the time. The fact that the entire system is being dis destroyed shows you the all-encompassing nature of this climate terror. Perhaps I should have drawn this out more at the end of the book. I, that opening paragraph that you quoted at the beginning of our, our uh, of the interview is my way of saying this is not some ancient history that is, has no relevance to contemporary life. But I decided that I wouldn't go into that. It would become, it would take the book away from what it was doing. But I think readers will work on this for themselves. They'll realize that yeah. there, there is a parallel. I, I think you can definitely over-egg that pudding. Yeah. I, I think that if you're reading with any attention and you'll, you'll uh, understand the, 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 yeah. co the consequences and coincidences and connections. Yeah. And I, as the writer, I live in 2023. Yeah. And the things that catch my attention and disturb me reflect the world in which I live. And that's what we should expect of good history. Mm -hmm. Can we end with, you, there's a stone that you describe, Ooh. which has the title, the most beautiful title, A Record of Sorrows in Response to These Times. Yes. What's that? Like probably two characters, who knows? It's that, that alone is a beautiful poem. In, in itself. Yes. But could you just a, describe that? That I, I, This is going to stay in my head for a long time. Yeah. This is an, an inscription on a stone slab, which called Steely, which was situated at the corner of a temple, a little bit off the Yellow River near the old capital, Xi'an. And it's a stone that has survived into the present. This stone starts with a poem in which the author wants the reader to realize the depth of despair in which people were living in 1643. And then he finishes his inscription with a list of prices. He gives you the price of every kind from rice all the way down to chaff. And he gives you a sense, this is what this costs. And I've never seen, I've never seen a stone inscription that is simply a price list, but that was the way in which this author, we don't even have his name and that's been lost. That part of the stone got chipped off. We don't know who wrote this. But it's the way in which he describes the desperation that people have reached by 1643. And so I, by save a more, I save that for the end of the book as a way to just remind us, remind us of, remind the reader of everything that the reader has just read. My guest today has been Tim Brooke. He's the author most recently of The Price of Collapse, The Little Ice Age and the Fall of Ming China. Tim, thanks so much for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Al, it's been a pleasure, and I hope we get to do it again soon. And thanks to you as well for being part of Historically Thinking. I'm Al Zambone. John Ruddett is our audio engineer. Listen next week for more conversations about history, how to think about history, and how history applies to the life we live. <laughs>